0: Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Tom Schwederman, Chief Medical Officer of Midmark, about how healthcare facility design can help improve patient safety. And now, on to the interview. All right, this is uh, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Dr. Tom Schwederman, uh, VP of Clinical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer at Midmark. How are you doing, Dr. Schwederman?
1: Doing fantastic. Look forward to our conversation, Jay.
0: All right, and we're gonna to talk today about designing the ambulatory care environment with safety in mind. But um, to start off, I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about Midmark and what you do there.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm the uh, Chief Medical Officer and the VP of Clinical Affairs at Midmark. Uh, Midmark is a, a company that's focused on improving the patient care experience. Um, we design the clinical ecosystem on which many doctors practice medicine. Uh, that includes the things like the exam table, the lights, the stools, the casework, medical devices, and our claim to fame is we bring it all together into a kind of a coordinated workflow, a coordinated disease care model, with a focus on the many uh, critical elements, which include patient safety, good clinical outcomes, uh, excellent uh, value creation. So, uh, so Midmark really is focused on enabling clinical care, and and. We do have other divisions in dental and animal health as well, but uh, medicals are largest and uh, our longest standing uh, business unit.
0: And what goes into your approach, uh, you know, when you're looking at the design of of a clinical environment?
1: Well, the first and foremost is we understand that this is a very important part of the care chain. That relationship between a doctor and their patient is something that's of of high critical nature. So when we design our ecosystems, we want to make sure that there is nothing coming between the patient and the doctor to get that rich and full patient experience. That includes things like barriers to make sure that, you know, when the doctor and a patient need to uh, interact in a physical exam, that uh, the equipment is serving that purpose perfectly if there is a clinical uh, need to check a physiologic metric like blood pressure, that we have the right devices in the room, that the data that comes from those devices goes to electronic health records seamlessly. And then we look at the entire workflow to make sure that when all those uh, care team members exchange with that patient, that it's done in a very coordinated, seamless, cost-effective way. And over the course of our many decades in, in ambulatory care, we have become pretty proficient at understanding what some of the best practices are if you you, you have equipment from coast to coast uh, you you tend to pick up some really good ideas from you know health systems from one part of the country and we try to you know democratize some of that information for for others so it's in one of the key roles i have you know, in addition to doing innovation and strategic planning is to also look at the quality measures to make sure that safety issues are all managed appropriately. There's no potential hazards in that room, and there's a whole lot that goes into that that are both required, but also you know part of an excellence-driven company like Bedmark.
0: Great. And can you tell me how uh, how does the approach differ between designing for ambulatory care versus acute care or a hospital?
1: Great, great question. Um, you know, at the end of the day. You know, medicine is a lot about influencing patients to make better decisions and giving them the right you know, therapeutics or tools to make those, those good decisions. In the acute care setting, it's a, it's a fairly intensive, you know, recovery scenario where there's some typically critical incident that happened, either an illness or a surgery or something causing uh, an abrupt high attention, high acuity care model. In the ambulatory side, it's it's more about relationships. It's more about you know finding that right acumen where you can have you know a very really good exchange and allow that patient and doctor to kind of come up with a mutually derived care plan. So it isn't. It's very clinical. Uh, it obviously has to be because we have to foster you know, good exam technique and good you know device integration. But it's also very ergonomic in in you know, sort of relationship-based. So it's a very interesting place of medicine, and it's changing so rapidly, you know, both because of COVID and because of technology that uh, we're finding there's new ways to do those jobs at the point of care.
0: And, um, you know, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, you know, everything sort of uh, is framed around COVID these days, but how has that impacted sort of what you do in terms of design?
1: It's, it's 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 fundamentally changing uh, ambulatory care in, in my opinion. Um, COVID did a couple things on the negative and several things on the positive. On the negative side, if there was one sector of healthcare that was severely economically impacted by the COVID pandemic, it was primary care. And as a primary care physician myself, it was somewhat ironic. You would think that that primary care physician would be you know, the, the, the exact soldier you needed in this war to, to to win it over the pandemic. But it but in the fee for service model, it, it, it fell apart because patients were afraid to see uh, their clinicians with fear of exposure. Uh, clinicians were, you know, scaling back on, you know, necessary office visits. And so we saw the primary care doctor's office really go through some very, very uh, terrible times. And the the payroll protection uh, program from the federal government was instrumental in keeping many of, especially private physicians afloat. On the positive side, COVID sort of like unearthed all of these things that needed to be corrected, not just the payment model, more towards a value-based scenario, but also no longer accepting things that were previously, you know, tolerated, I guess, you know, infection, transmission at the point of care, and uh, that, you know, there are times where there are some opportunities for patients to cross-mingle and they probably shouldn't have been, or there's chances where there's a bacteria or a spore on a, a piece of equipment that, okay, well, we'll have that from time to time. A lot of those things now are looked upon as, no, that's not okay. We have to totally understand where those problems are coming from and mitigate them. And uh, what we're seeing today is, uh it's not just the clinical entities focused on infection prevention. Every patient that walks into the door is looking left, looking right, looking up and down to make sure that this is a safe environment for their care. So it's, it's become a not just a driver of excellence on the provider side. It's become an ex- expectation on the patient side, which is it's always kind of been there, uh, Jay, but now it's it's front and center.
0: Um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the three main components that you focus on when you're designing.
1: Well, obviously we very much focus on the, uh, clinical workflow that comes a- around in, in a patient care exchange. We look at the, make sure that the, the proper clinical positioning and proper clinical, um, you know, equipment is in the room for the right, uh, scenarios. And, um, finally we make sure that we understand the data and data connectivity that, uh, go into that model because data really drives medicine at the end of the day and it becomes critical that the, all that correct data is in the uh, in the proper place
0: and you know when when you're looking at the design of the room itself you know what what are the kinds of things that you are, are hoping to accomplish with that
1: well first um Cleanability and uh, bacterial avoidance. Um, there's something in medicine called colonization where a bacteria can find its way into a seam or a crack and um, kind of harbor there and, and grow and expand. So simple things that would be very logical to the listener would be like avoiding seams on the top of an exam table, avoiding seams and corners and niches and grooves in, in the ca- in the casework or the cabinetry. Uh, making sure that when you have, uh, you know, solid surfaces on the table, that there's ability to clean those with, you know, fairly harsh chemicals to make sure that the bacteria doesn't, uh, you know, maintain itself there. Um, that that is a really critical part of it. Um, the second thing that is that's kind of the primary uh, or secondary prevention, meaning avoiding spreading anything that's already in the environment. Primary prevention, we're looking at things like real-time locating systems where uh, knowing who's in the environment, where they are, trying to keep the, uh, the paths from crossing too often between you know, patients that may have infections. Um, so we're, we're looking at the workflow to minimize uh, contact, uh, uh, or avoiding contact and contact tracing. That's, that's another critical element. And, and finally, um, we're looking at how can we be more effective in making sure that that patient and doctor are having exactly the right information in that exam room the first time because total length of stay at the time it takes to care for a patient obviously if you minimize that time in the office you're going to minimize the, the risk of exposure so it, it it really falls into those kind of tried and true known preventative measures to, to keep people healthy and well at, a, at the point of care.
0: And how does sort of the way you approach things now differ from the sort of traditional way uh, these facilities
1: were designed? Well, as I said, uh, the traditional way was um, in the past, it wasn't that our customers weren't listening to us when we were talking about the importance of contact tracing and avoiding exposures and surface contamination. It wasn't that they weren't listening, but now it has become a, a a little bit of a mandate for care and it's become uh an economic requirement for them as as these care models shift towards more what are called never events uh from the from the uh, cms and payer groups a never event is something that should have and could have been avoided like wrong site surgery is an example of a never event or an infection that that was caused by the environment is a never event so what we're seeing is our customers are now very atten- attend- attuned to those never events for their payment models because they just can't afford to have those non-paid situations uh, or those expense situations come about. But on the other side, as I said earlier, the, the patients themselves are, are demonstrating uh, the voting with their feet ability that if they don't feel safe in the environment in which you're being cared for, their people are actively um, – you know, voicing that they would be willing to change providers because of it. And that is a very uh, critical issue for, you know, any health system to deal with. They don't want erosion of their population base. So, we we look at it from a, a much more as an economic value proposition that this is a must-have um, area that you need to pay close attention to.
0: Um, how has the role of ambulatory care changed over the years? I mean, it seems like you know, it, once upon a time, it was probably more of an afterthought, but it seems like it's a huge part now of of the system, the continuum uh, of care
1: for patients. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it to be, in fact, this is uh, probably one of the most fascinating things. I I'm a fourth generation family doc, so oh, wow. you go you go back to my great grandfather, and uh, I could look at his degree here in my office of, from 1893 to today. As the face of ambulatory care has changed dramatically. And it's not, it's never changed as fast as it's changing right now. You know, several things are, are being influenced. And we just had a meeting about this today. You know, the, the rate of telehealth now has has gone from zero pre COVID up to 80% at the peak of the pandemic. And now it's leveling off at 19%. And we think that that leveling off is going to maintain itself. So the virtual connection, similar to what we're having a communication here, Doctors and patients are going to be communicating over this medium uh, in a very uh, routine fashion. And we think it's going to be in that 15 20% range and and slowly grow thereafter. But what else is happening is that doesn't mean that the physician's office is going to be less critical. We see that that systems are now talking about moving uh, more complex care to the ambulatory environment. Uh, Procedures that normally were done at the same-day surgical site, are increasingly being viewed as going to the ambulatory site. We're seeing uh, disease care models uh, become more strict so that uh, primary care physicians are gonna be asked to do more complex disease care because of the gray tsunami that's hitting us. And and finally, we're seeing that this the ambulatory care environment is gonna have this omni-channel requirement where you're gonna to have to be able to manage the care continuum, as you pointed out, all the way from the home the retail channel to the ambulatory environment to the subacute hospital to the acute hospital to long-term care. We're now part of a we're a single link on a long chain. And so being able to sort of manage that environment really centers at that primary care and that that physician's office. So um so it's it's changing quickly. I I'm one to believe that this environment is going to become you know more and more critical as time goes on and Keeping it safe, clean, effective, workflow enabled is, is the name of the game if you're going to have a a profitable healthcare system.
0: Um, you mentioned that you know you're seeing sort of eventually a shift of you know procedure more procedures being done um, you know on the ambulatory side. How does that change how you would design a facility?
1: Great question. Um, if you think about it, there's several. Areas of the of the office that aren't particularly um, I won't say useful, but they aren't particularly uh, clinically useful. The waiting room is a good example of that. In the past, there's a chart room. There's areas of the clinic that just aren't revenue generating or revenue optimizing. I guess would be a better way to put it. So I see the clinical space becoming uh, more. Capable each exam room being capable of of larger and more broad use cases Um, Many offices now your typical doctor have three exam rooms And there'll be a procedure room shared by two or three doctors I think we're going to start seeing more flexibility in each of those exam rooms so that if you have a minor procedure You can adapt that environment to be more uh, capable of handling that you know minor procedure if it's a a mole removal or a, a gynecological procedure. I think those rooms are going to need to have the capacity to upscale and downscale based on that. We're going to see uh, more telemedicine and virtual channel enablement in these rooms because we're hearing from doctors that they don't want to do that at home on their computer. They want to do it in the office often with their exam settings. So um, I think we're going to see that clinic space become more um, flexible and dynamic in its, its capabilities. With that, I think we're going to see more sophisticated equipment and more uh, product needs in that environment to support this higher complexity of care. And I think you know, to, the, to the focus of this talk on infection prevention, that opens a, a new dynamic where all those elements of how to keep this clean and safe uh, between patients is really, really going to be important whether that's antimicrobial surface protection, whether that's, uh, you know, more durable surfaces, whether that's, you know, equipment that can be moved out of the way so it can be cleaned. There's just a lot of, uh, a lot of innovation that could be had there.
0: Uh, And you mentioned waiting rooms. Do you see waiting rooms ever going away? Uh, You know, during the pandemic, obviously we've seen, uh, you know, folks being told to wait, you know, either in their cars or, you know, to be, you know, they'll be summoned when they're, Actually supposed to to go in, um, is that something that we should kind of follow through on and continue to you know prevent uh, infection from spreading? Uh, you know when I, I can remember taking my daughter to the emergency room and sitting there for three hours, you know, with tons of people around, you know, coughing
1: exactly, and sneezing. And you're looking left, right at every yeah. turn. Yeah, I I uh, yeah, I practiced for ten years, and they're always typically once a day or every other day. Uh, a patient that would refuse to sit in the waiting room, and uh, I think they were prescient. I, I think uh, they they understood that this is not exactly a healthy situation to have you know people who are inherently coming to the doctor for a health reason, probably sick or probably infirmed, to be around other people at a, at a, a rate. so I, I do feel the the waiting room is being examined as a uh, do we really need this uh, room or not and so just in time you know operations and factory settings have become you know the, the norm I think we're going to start seeing more just in time operational efficiencies to you know avoid that four-hour wait uh, there's a two-hour wait that we've heard nightmares of patients waiting in a doctor's office so I, I think you know it's all about Balancing the workflow needs of that doctor, making sure the right tools are in his hands or her hands to, to do the care that needed. And it, if you do it well, there's no reason why you would need a, a warehousing, wait, as, as, the, as the manufacturing term, why you need to warehouse patients before you can see them. I know it sounds cold, but that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think the waiting room is a uh, potential vestige. Let me give you a stat that I think will will put this a little bit in perspective that I find fascinating. In 2019, in December, the number of flu, positive flu cases were 50,526 cases, according to the CDC. In December of 2020, it was 454. Wow. A 99% reduction. And so what, what I'm bringing this up for is There's a whole lot of things that we're learning from COVID that nobody anticipated to learn. And one of them is masking and social distancing work. And we're starting to see now that all of these conditions that sort of flourished and we accepted it are starting to now become, you know, like, wait a minute here. Maybe we have an opportunity with some more, you know, optimized, you know, simple things like masking and social distancing. We could perhaps minimize it. So. When we're talking about waiting rooms, you start saying, you know, why would I put all of these at-risk people together in the same room? We would never do that. And I don't know about you, but I watch TV sometimes and sometimes there's many times the shows are like a year or two old and the two people are talking like 12 inches apart and you're just like, no, 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 you gotta separate. Yeah. And I think we're <laughs> gonna have that kind of mentality shift after COVID. And I think we're going to see masking as a norm. I think we're going to see, you know, people being more attentive to social distancing. I think people are going to say, I'm not sitting in this waiting room. I think we're going to see a lot of that come about.
0: Well, and from an efficiency standpoint, I would think that would improve things considerably if you didn't have people sitting in your waiting room for three hours. You know, if you just right. said, well, you know, we'll call you when, you're, when it's time for you to come in. You know, from their standpoint, they're not sitting there. They're, you know, they're, if they're told, you know, 10 minutes ahead of time, like, Hey, come on in. I would think that'd be much better. And then from the offices standpoint, I mean, obviously they're, they're not, you know, like you said, warehousing people, they don't have all these germs flying around right. and it's, you know, it's more, it's much more efficient. Right.
1: One. Yeah. And let me, I'll give you another stat too on, on the infection prevention side, Not stat, but a, a, a theme. There's one rule of surgery that that if you're really, really efficient and you open and close in a relatively fast period of time, a whole lot of benefits follow right with you. You have less perfect infections, you have lower complication rates. So that's why a lot of these surgeons who do the procedure over and over again can do it very quickly and they tend to have better outcomes. If you think about that from an office setting, if you're super efficient and the patients are Getting out of the car, they're being seen, they're being attended to, they're they're getting all the information at the point of care they need, and they leave. The same kind of attri- positive attributes will happen. The patient will be higher satisfied. They're probably going to have less exposure risk because they they spent ten seconds in the hallway. They're in a private room that's just been cleaned. The staff has knows exactly where the sick and non-sick are, so they make absolutely sure to wash their hands and keep themselves. You can just see how this would tail down, and then. Mm-hmm. To your point about efficiency, you know that that becomes a very efficient you know business model for the for the care team because you know, you're minimizing this uh, delay periods. So there's no waste in the system because patients who are there are getting their stuff and getting out. So I I'm with you. I think uh, there's some models in RTLS that, that we've we've seen that there can be up to a 30 percent improvement in room efficiency with self-rooming, you know, technologically-enabled a- systems. So, um, yeah, I, I, I wonder, too, whether this is going to uh, change how we see the doctor. And I'll finally I'll say on this last topic here that I just don't think you would tolerate this kind of wait in any other segment of <laughs> consumer life. I mean, I, you wouldn't go – you don't wait two hours – if you wait for two hours at a restaurant, you're pretty darn sure you won't eat at that restaurant, right? Um, it just doesn't happen like that anymore.
0: Yeah, but the only thing you know is if people were like camping out for, you know, Star Wars tickets or something like that. But uh, exactly, even that might go away. Um, I don't
1: think I'm as popular as a, a new Star Wars movie as a doc. But all right, <laughs> yeah.
0: There you go. <laughs> um, Want to ask you? You know, obviously, we're still in the midst of you know this COVID nineteen pandemic. But, you know, from all the lessons that we've just discussed and and everything going on, how prepared are we for the next pandemic that, you know, whenever it may come?
1: You know what? Um, It's interesting. If you were to to log on to the CDC, they will, they have a list of the current, you know, viral and bacterial threats. And there are several up there that are, you know, eye openers. Um, I I agree with you. I think the, the pandemic that we have we're hopefully seeing the end of now or the diminishing of is, is a one time getting caught with your pants down as a the global economy on something that was somewhat predictable. I mean you've heard a lot of these experts saying this was going to happen. And I think the uh, the learning from the COVID pandemic is just starting to uh, starting to come in from a how do we avoid this down the road? And you know it's 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 simple things like masking and social distancing. And one of the statistics that I think kind of gives you some insight into this is if you look at what happened in the East Asian countries like Korea and uh, China, they had a much more controlled um, uh, event with this pandemic, mainly because everybody knew exactly what to do because of the SARS, you know, birth right. flu uh, scenario mm-hmm. they had. So they all knew how to mask, you know, the distance, and they didn't have to educate the populace, and the populace believed it to the point where they were able to execute on it. So I think one thing we have in our favor is all this muscle memory we have with COVID is going to be very beneficial. The second, as we talked about, is I just don't see us tolerating known risks anymore. Like, uh, you know, almost 80% of all doctors' offices have uh, clostridium difficile, a a gastrointestinal Mm -hmm. diarrhea bug sitting in it, 80%. And I just think at some point, we're going to say, we can't do that anymore. And like this flu statistic, you know, we're not going to accept 50,000 cases of flu. We know there's a way to drop at 99%. So I I think to your point, I think the, uh, I also think the feds and the CDC are going to you know, obviously, be better prepared next time with uh, capabilities to implement things. Uh, but I'm, I do worry about it. To be frank with you, with the antimicrobial resistance going on, and the global economy of travelers, and the opportunity for bugs to, you know, variant as we're seeing with COVID, it, it will happen again. It's just a question of uh, are we are we in a better position next time?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've been writing about this stuff for
1: 20 years, you know, just the possibility
0: of, you know, pandemics yeah. and, and, uh, you know, obviously like the ones you mentioned going on uh, across the world. And it's kind of amazing that we hadn't been hit until, you know, 2020.
1: It truly is. I mean, we were on the brink with the Ebola, mm-hmm. you know, the SARS thing. Uh, thankfully that virus was too lethal and, and it burned itself out quicker. And, um, with with covid it just hit every possible these are the criteria you need for a global pandemic and it nailed them all and so but i i it's it's to your point it's we're going to see something like this again but on the positive side just to kind of spin this positive the immunological understanding we've gained from covid is going to bear dividends for all types of care cancer care you know, vaccinology, all these things that have, I call it the moonshot. It's like when we went to the moon with Apollo 11, all of this technology came out of that that we enjoyed for for decades. We're going to see similar type of clinical advancement and workflow advancement and telemedicine advancement. I think all of some, we're not going to come out of this thing with a a bag of dirt. We're going to come out of this thing with some gems that is going to be, uh, you know, beneficial to us. And, uh, I'm, I'm bullish on that. I think we have a really exciting, uh, two to three years ahead of us, because I think we're going to see some, some real innovation happening.
0: And I think we already have, um, just in terms of, you know, the vaccines uh, and how quickly we were able to get them produced.
1: Phenomenal. And yeah. and that research started with HIV and Ebola. So, you know, we stood on the shoulders of giants to mm-hmm. some of that innovation, but, um, and I think too, uh, Jay, when it comes to telemedicine that's that's a new tool that's just now starting to be you know in first it's become accepted, and B, it's starting to be understood as the words where applicable. And there's nothing better to avoid infection than to keep people through a virtual communication. There's no chance of transmission. so I think right I think we're going to see this uh, this complex system we call healthcare start to become a little more rational and logical in how it's, uh, how it's presented.
0: Well, I like ending on a positive note and that certainly is one. So th- Dr. Schwenner, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today.
1: That's fun. I, was, uh, I look forward to the next time. Thank you for reaching out. All right.
0: That wraps up episode 26 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I hope to join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on demand episodes on the show's page at PSQH.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.